we're in a moment now which is horrific. You know, we're seeing things and we're feeling things that we never thought we'd feel, that we thought belonged to the past. But this is our moment and this is a time to be proud and to be unified and to be guided by our history to know that whatever comes, we will endure um, and that we will move forward as a people will survive. Of that, we can be sure. This is Chapters, a podcast dedicated to exploring our story. Who am I and what am I meant to be doing in this world? Perhaps through listening, understanding, questioning, we better understand our own story. Alex, thank you. I'm your biggest fan. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, Alex Ripson, you are a co-chief executive officer of the Executive Council of Australian Jewelry, a lawyer, Israel advocate, regular commentator on TV and radio all over the world. And I read that you're also an international bestseller for a children's book that you wrote during COVID. Is that I correct? Did. Yeah. Um, you're the author of arguably the three most important books on history and politics, Zionism, then Concise History, the Israel, the Anti-Israel Agenda, and the Seven Deadly Myths of Anti-Semitism from the Time of Christ to Kanye West, published mere months before 7th of October Massacre. It is increasingly clear in the past few months that these are the most important books that anyone could read right now. Knowing your history with going back to Zionism and the concise history, actually understanding the political war that we're fighting right now on social media and the media alike, as well as the seven deadly myths of anti-Semitism, how anti-Semitism is a virus that has mutated and has really plagued us since our inception. Your books have really stood as a warning bell. And never in our wildest dreams could we have envisioned the dormant hatred come to life with the millions of pro-Palestinians supporters in the recent months. I know for one, I was completely shocked and I know the rest of the Jewish world very much was too. Therefore, in the current climate, it is abundantly clear that there is no voice as important as yours. So thank you so much for being here. I'm a huge fan. I use your resources in all my educational classes. So it's a huge honor. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Anna. It's a pleasure. The pleasure really is mine. And thank you for your kind and generous words. It means so much to me. And to know that, you know, you've benefited from my books and you teach them, uh, I'm humbled by it. So thank you so much. Thank you. So you discuss in your childhood, you were born in Kiev, Ukraine. You say that you took your first steps in the Babi Yar forest where the massacre happened in September 1941. You grew up with the statue of Bogdan Khmelnytsky in your shadow after moving to Sydney and experiencing anti-Semitism face on. Is it possible to elaborate how these events really shaped who you are today? So that history has always been a part of me and it's something that has in one sense weighed heavily on me, but on the other hand, it's given me everything that I am. It's given me my love of family, my love of life, my love of my people. It's also given me a great sense of duty, you know, knowing that we're a part of something greater than ourselves in our own time in history. Um, we have an obligation and a duty. And, you know, growing up in the first few years of my life in Kiev, you know, living there a block from Baba Yar, that's where our family home was, and taking those first steps on that hallowed, sacred, horrific soil of Baba Yar, which now is, you know, a park like any other in Kiev. And aside from the monuments, which most people just walk past in oblivion, you wouldn't know what happened there, that it belongs to one of the darkest chapters in the history of our people and, and of mankind. 
um, and knowing that that's where I come from, knowing how close my family came to ending up in that ravine. We evacuated a mere couple of days before the Nazis entered that city after the Red Army withdrew, uh, after it was encircled by the Nazis. Seeing the statue of Bogdan Khmelnytsky take part of place in the center of Kiev and knowing that Khmelnytsky was responsible for, before Hitler, it was Khmelnytsky. He was the bogeyman of the Jewish people. And the Cossack rebellion that he led resulted in the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of Jews, and not merely the number, but it was the manner in which they were carried out. You know, it was the bloodlust, the revelry, the sadism. You know, you read those stories, the accounts of how people were killed, and it makes you question humanity. You write about Natan Hanava, and when I was reading what went on 7th of October, it's the exact same account. It's true, it's true. And after October 7, you know, in the rare quiet moments that I had, I kept trying to place what happened in the arc of Jewish history. And I thought about Bogdan Khmelnytsky and the Cossack Rebellion and the pogroms that came after. And the fact that it was carried out not with any sort of political program in mind, it wasn't about capturing land or territory, it was about violating our people. And it was chillingly reminiscent of what happened on the lands from where I came hundreds of years before. Um, so that's given me a lot of my personality and character and, as I said, sense of duty and desire to stand up and fight. And then coming to this country and, you know, having absorbed those stories from my parents and grandparents, you know, I foolishly believed that anti-Semitism was something we left over there, you know, in the old country. And for the most part, my life here has been peaceful and tolerant and I'm privileged to be called an Australian, um, and our people have a great history in this country. You know, we were among the first European settlers to come here in the first fleet. We've contributed so much to this country, but anti-Semitism, as we've seen, it's an incredible phenomenon where it can lay dormant, um, where it can possess the minds of otherwise ordinary, normal, humane people. And I've experienced that, you know, I experienced a neighbor living in a middle-class apartment block not far from here, uh, where a neighbor, upon learning that we were Jewish, would stand on his balcony night after night and bellow at us with this thunderous tone, which I still remember, Hitler didn't finish the job, I will finish, finish it for him. And, you know, it was horrific and it became difficult to sleep under that sort of thing. But at the same time, I'm pleased in some way that it happened because it reminded me, it shook me from the stupor. Um, of complacency, believing that that battle had been fought and won and ended with the Holocaust. It hadn't. And it's with us now. And it's something that we need to step up to as, as Jews. This is our time. This is our fight. Every generation of Jews has had their moment of challenge. And this is ours. You write in your book, the Jew is hated because of how or he or she is perceived to think. How much do you think that is prevalent when we talk about the way the Jewish story has been constructed in the recent months to discuss the, the whole narrative of apartheid, colonialism, the whole perception? And it, I feel like in a way um, that this war is a war of whose narrative do you connect to more? Yeah. And it's narrative versus narrative in that sense. You're trying to get people to really hear your story and the Palestinians have constructed a narrative that everyone wants to jump yeah. board on. So how deeply do you think that's true in regards to the anti-Semitic experience that we're currently under? Well, look, I, I agree with you, Hannah. I think the Palestinian narrative is very compelling. Um, it's very emotive. It's bare on facts. Um, but that doesn't seem to bother them. Um, but they repeat it with great consistency as well. And basically that narrative also dips into anti-Semitic 
theories and characterizations of Jews, which is what makes it so compelling, which is why it can take hold in societies, because anti-Semitism itself and the conspiracy theories and myths through which it's transmitted have taken hold in society. So, you know, everything that we're accused of, of being child killers, of practicing apartheid and colonialism and genocide and ethnic cleansing and organ harvesting, you know, the starting point for that is that the Jews are evil, irredeemably wicked and bloodthirsty, and that we're also liars, that we can't be trusted. And if that's your starting point, then obviously we're capable of all those things that we're accused of. And in the same way that anti-Semitism worked throughout history, we were accused of that cardinal sin offense of deicide, of the killing of Christ. Um, in Muslim tradition, we were the poisoners of Muhammad. So once you characterize a people as that, they're capable of anything. They're not to be trusted. They're going to steal your children and use their blood for rituals. They're going to do anything that you can think of. We're basically the companion of the devil. That's how we've been characterized. And in the Palestinian narrative, that's what we are as well. You know, the most egregious sins a people could commit, that's what we're guilty of. And that's why they've been rather successful in spreading the hate in the movement, because it's not only a political movement, it's rooted in a sociological, historical hatred of the Jewish people. It confirms what people always suspected about us, that wow. we're capable of these horrific things. But this is why I think so many in the Jewish world have been baffled and are experiencing hatred in a way they've never seen it before. You know, to be accused of being a child killer, uh, to be accused of supporting genocide. And we know that's not who we are. And we know that's not what the state of Israel is. But throughout history, there's been the Jew, as you and I are in flesh and blood, what we believe and what we think and who we are. And then there's been the mythical Jew, which has been slandered and maligned and given every negative characteristic, imaginable obsession with money, disloyalty, a sinister character, all of these things. And we keep trying to defend the Jew that you and I are without understanding what they're actually hating. They're not hating us, they're hating this myth that has been created. And it's the same with Israel. We talk about Israeli policy, about military strategy. We compare it to the battle against ISIS or Al-Qaeda, but they don't listen because they see evil in us. And it's very hard to, to kind of combat that when that's their starting point. Is there a solution? Because everyone's just like, why, how, what can we actually do? Well, the first instance, don't argue with those people who despise us. And I think the problem that we've had as a people, we've always felt that if we could just talk, if we could just be heard, if we could explain ourselves, show our humanity, show our intellect, show our compassion, then surely they must understand that all these things they've been fed are lies and nonsense. But the anti-Semite doesn't care. And there's a quote which I'm fond of using, which has been circulated around the world about how the anti-Semite accuses the Jew of stealing, not because he thinks he's actually stolen something. He just enjoys watching the Jew turn out his pockets to prove that he's innocent. And that's what's happening now, you know, with the people who are denying the atrocities of October 7, the rape, the beheadings, all these things that we know happened. They are enjoying watching us contort and, you know, and, and, and plead and beg to be understood and heard. Don't give them that satisfaction. But the whole world isn't of that class. There are those people and they need to be ignored and fought. But the rest of the world, which is still oblivious and convincible, I think the most effective thing isn't directly engaging with the lies and the slander, but it's a process of what I would call inoculation. It's showing them over a long period of time 
who we truly are as people, showing them what Israel is as a country. You know, when people do focus groups over the years about Israel, the, the overwhelming perception of Israel is a ghettoized society with chain fences everywhere um, and guns and everyone is uniformly ultra-Orthodox. You know, people don't know what the country's actually like. And when they go there, they're seduced by it. They're transformed by it because it's the most incredible place on the face of the earth. So the more we can show who we are as Jews, as Zionists, um, that Israel can show its true face, then that slander loses its impact. So we need to inoculate the people against the lies which they'll inevitably be fed. You speak about the word anti-Semitism, and I think I've always thought that the actual word gaslights us yeah. because it's sort of, I see these posts on Instagram, we're Semitic too. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts? What do you think we can do to change that awareness? Because there's no other group of people that have to defend themselves like this. Like if someone walked on the street and said, kill the gays yeah. or kill the blacks, that's not okay. But for this context and this experience, somehow it's completely passed off as normal. Well, it's incredible because it's the term that we use to describe hatred of the Jewish people. And the phenomenon that you've described is exactly what the framer of that word, Wilhelm Ma sought to achieve. So Wilhelm Maher was a German anti-Semite who formed the League of Anti-Semitism. And he came up with this term anti-Semitism. Previously, it was Jew hatred or Jew baiting or various derivations of that. But he wanted to give anti-Semitism, hatred of the Jewish people, this scientific sounding veneer. He wanted to gaslight. He wanted to attack the Jewish people and make it look like he was engaged in something legitimate. And so that term has been problematic from the beginning. And when we talk about people not understanding who we are as a people, a lot of it begins with anti-Semitism. You know, it's a confusing term and it's allowed our enemies to obfuscate and to confuse people and say, hang on a second, Arabs are Semites too. Anti-Semitism isn't actually hatred of the Jewish people. It's a complete nonsense. The term anti-Semitism was coined to apply to us alone. Wow. There are no such people as the Semites. That's not a, a ethnic group. It's a literary class of languages. And so, you know, people try to insert these sorts of false arguments, these specious arguments to detract away from the real issue. The real issue is hatred of the Jewish people. It doesn't matter what you really call it. So there's a movement on to, you know, reframe anti-Semitism as Jew hatred, anti-Jewish racism. I support that. But ultimately... We've seen in this battle for words that when we reclaim a term, the anti-Semites move on to the next one. So I think that ultimately a person who's compelled to do harm to the Jewish people will do so regardless of what terminology is used. But we have a right to define what hatred against us look like. We know it, we've lived it, we've studied it, and every other people have that or afforded that right. And when you look at, for example, the battle in the British Labour Party a few years ago about this very issue, about the right of the Jewish people to define anti-Semitism, Jeremy Corbyn went to war on this issue, remarkably, on confrontation with the Jewish community. So it is a fundamental right of a people to define what hatred against them looks like. And the fact that we're, we're denied that right and we alone is an example of double standards and the hatred of the Jewish people itself. It's crazy. From someone who is so deeply familiar with every aspect of Israeli-Palestinian contentions, like you've really gone back from the beginning of time. How surprised were you for the unfolding of the 7th of October? Is it something you finished this book? When did the myths come out? The myths came out in May last year. So, okay, so, so just, just a few, a few months. months before October. Yeah. Okay. So how, to what extent were you surprised 
Um, do you think that this was inevitable? And what specific historical events do you believe can we trace back to trying to understand how this could have happened? You mean in the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict specifically? Yes. I think that, you know, we believed that peace was possible. We believed that long-term truces, even with groups like Hamas, was possible. And we believed it not because it was true or supported by evidence. We believed it because we wanted to believe. We wanted to believe that if we acted in a certain way, if we contributed to the region, that peace would, would somehow flow. And what we've misjudged horribly, and to our immense discredit, is the fact that the Palestinian movement, it's not a movement predicated on building something. It's, it's an identity and a movement that is predicated on destroying something else. And this is where the Palestinian movement is so different to all the other Arab groups in the region and the state. So there's been animosity between Jews and Arabs for a long time before the state of Israel when Jews lived in Arab lands. We suffered the same pogroms as we did in Europe. We suffered anti-Semitic laws. All of these things happened. But countries like Egypt, Persia, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, they're not defined by anti-Zionism. They're not defined by opposition to the Jewish people. The Palestinian national movement, which really began in the 1920s with Hajim and al-Husseini and uh, the Nebi Musa riots, uh, that's when they really coalesced as, as a distinct identity as opposed to being Ottoman subjects or Syrians, which is how they tended to view themselves up to that point. So they formed that national identity, that view of self and of the future, based on an opposition to the creation of a Jewish state in that land, on the basis of opposing Jewish migration and land sales to Jews and a Jewish homeland in any borders, in any circumstances. That was always the position. And we allowed ourselves to be fooled and deluded into believing that we, if we acted in a certain way, if we withdrew from territories, if we gave concessions, if we went along with internationally brokered peace processes, we would secure ourselves. And sadly, it has taken this to shatter that delusion. And I think this marks the end of that delusion of the Jewish people. Um, and I hope we now know what it is that we're dealing with. We're dealing with an evil in Hamas and its like-minded terror organizations that can never be placated, that can never be satisfied. It can only be destroyed or it will destroy us. And it's a horror that it took what happened on October 7, which will traumatize us as a people for generations. We will never forget this. But on some level, perhaps it needed to happen for us to be shaken from this, you know, from this state that we were in, a state of delusion. Um, and, and I hope now we will move forward and seek peace with the Arab parties around us in the Arab states, which is possible, I believe. But as regards the Palestinian terror organizations, it will never be possible. So do you believe that a two-state solution is even possible post 7th of October? I mean, I'm... I've always supported a two-state solution as being the just resolution of the conflict. And I go back to the Peel Commission of 37, and I go back to the partition plan of 47, where it was said that regardless of the rights and wrongs and the history, there are now two distinct peoples in the land, each with their own conceptions of themselves and their future. And the only fair solution is partition. I believe that. But there has to be a legitimate party with which to arrive at such an accord and agreement. And we now know that none such exists. Um, Hamas has to be destroyed, root and branch. It has to be pulled out. Every other terror group like it has to suffer the same fate. There can never be peace with them. 
if in a generation's time um, the Palestinians realize that they have a choice to make, perpetual war with the Jewish people, which they will suffer in and they will lose time and time again, or they can choose the path of peace and progress and prosperity and be willing to compromise. If that occurs, then you can have peace in a two-state solution. I firmly believe that. But under the current circumstances, I am opposed to a two-state solution because anything that would happen now would reward the, the most heinous crime that we've witnessed in our lives. And that can't happen. That would have global ramifications. That would embolden terror forces throughout the world. But conceptually, I still believe in a two-state solution. Maybe at some time it will come with a change in leadership and a change in culture and identity of the Palestinians. But maybe I'm still in some sort of state of delusion myself, or maybe it's hopeless optimism, but we'll see. But I think we need to understand that right now we're dealing with an enemy that has to be fought and that we can't compromise with. What do we answer people when they talk about the Palestinian death toll? Obviously, you speak about your book as the Jews going from the oppressed to the oppressor. And I was listening to one of the things you put out, but you were saying they have delicious relish in that, that people love that the Jewish narrative has transformed from the people that were oppressed to the oppressors. How do we combat that form of anti-Semitism and how do we debunk it specifically when people talk about the Palestinian death toll? And that is a reality. It's a difficult one to debunk because people love a certain narrative, they love a certain irony or quirk of history, and they liked this narrative, this notion that the Jewish people who suffered such brutality throughout history and had a holocaust and genocide inflicted upon them are now doing the same to someone else. They, they love that. And even though it is nonsense start to finish, they like it. It appeals to them and so they go with it. And it also allows them to shake off any lingering guilt or obligation to the Jewish people because the Holocaust, because they create this narrative that the Jews are now guilty of the same crime. Why would we have sympathy for them? And we've seen this throughout the, the decades of the Arab-Israeli conflict. I remember during the Second Intifada, there was an iconic image where there was a shootout between Hamas gunmen and the IDF soldiers. And in between were caught a father and a son. The boy was named Muhammad al-Durah. And they were eventually shot and killed in the crossfires. Who did so, we don't know. Um, forensic investigations found that it was most likely the Palestinians, but it's kind of beside the point. But the reason I'm raising this now is because after that, that image became so iconic. And I remember a French journalist saying that the image of the Jewish boy leaving the Warsaw Ghetto with hands raised and an SS man with, with the rifle pointed at his back has now been erased. It's gone. It's been replaced by Mohammed al-Durah. And... The journalist was clearly craving that, wanting to do that. She wanted to shake off the Holocaust as though it never happened, found a convenient way to do so, and there you go. So we're dealing with people who have a great deal of ignorance and malice, which is difficult to kind of shake them out of and, and to transform. But, you know, when, when you talk about the civilian toll in Gaza, no doubt civilians are suffering and dying. There's no question about that. I mean, when you look at the death toll, and we don't know what the death toll is because all the numbers come from Hamas, so they're not worth the, the air they're uttered into those numbers. But no doubt civilians are dying. Whenever you have urban warfare in a dense, in a populated environment like that, civilians will die. From the numbers that we've seen of number of Hamas killed, um, it looks like the ratio of dead combatants to civilians is remarkably low in the history of recent urban warfare when compared with Syria, when compared with battles like Fallujah and Mosul. 
And the Americans themselves have said that the Israelis are going to lengths which they themselves would not go to to protect civilian life. They wouldn't. Um, they haven't. No, that's right. That's right. And in, in some cases, I think, you know, the preservation of human life, of civilian life is paramount. But to me, the lives of Israeli soldiers aren't dispensable either. You know, in some countries, soldiers are viewed as, as kind of worthless, as fodder, but not to me. I mean, these are our sons and brothers and fathers. These are heroes fighting and dying so that Israel may live. And they deserve to be sent into conditions um, where they're not fighting with a hand or hands tied behind their back and being exposed to unreasonable risk. I mean, there's risk inherent in any warfare, but... You know, the, the role of the political class and the military echelon as well is, is to support the soldiers and to create an environment in which they can fight and carry out their mission and not risk death needlessly. Um, so I, I think for the good of, you know, the state of Israel and the morale of the society, we can't have the soldiers dying either, you know. But no one sees that and no one, no one cares for the lives of our soldiers like we do. But frankly, I don't care what, what they think, you know. So... We're in a difficult situation and at the moment now when things are so charged and so many images are circulating online, often doctored images or images taken from other conflicts showing horrific scenes, um, it's kind of difficult to rebut. But ultimately, this is what happens in war. People need to accept that and understand that. It's immature to think otherwise. People die in war. That's why people and forces and movements shouldn't start wars because war is you know, the greatest hell that we can inflict on each other. I hope this war ends quickly, um, and I hope that Hamas is destroyed. I hope our hostages are rescued or released, and I hope we can move on to an era of peace, but that can only happen with the destruction of Hamas. There are two things in your anti-Israel agenda, which was a brilliant book. There were two things that I think came up time and time again that I didn't know about, and I think are probably the two most important things to get us where we are today in modern times, which was the Zionism is racism resolution in the United Nations General Assembly um, that determines that Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. And two, which is Durban 2001 World Conference Against Racism. Is it possible to take us through these two events and how it has really shaped the world's perception that Zionism is some... It's so funny because you posted on Twitter and you were calling out Clementine Ford, how so many of her statements link up to some of the myths of the mm. past of anti-Semitism and so many of the comments where she's not saying Jews, she's saying Zionists. Mm. And I think that really attests to mm. what happened in these two yes. events. So is it possible to go back and talk about it and how it's really shaped our perceptions? People don't understand the Zionists mm. are not some Nazis. The Zionism are our brothers, mm. our fathers. It's the entire Jewish world. We are the yeah. people of Zion. So yeah. how do we learn about this narrative and debunk it? Well, firstly, thank you for your perceptive observations, because you're absolutely spot on that those two events were really seminal moments in the history of the anti-Israel movement and explain much of why we are where we are now. Um, and also the way that Zionism is used as a euphemism to describe Jews. So on the 10th of November 1975 was when the General Assembly passed a resolution that Zionism is a form of racism and racial hatred. And the backstory, the dealings in the corridors of the UN that led to that are quite extraordinary and, and give great insight into the way the international system works and also why so many on the hard left are willing to accept these myths and these lies and this slander. 
So basically, the United States at the time and its allies were looking to pass resolutions against um, fascism, against apartheid, against systems of racism and so forth, and also against anti-Semitism. Now, the Soviets, who were at that time practicing their own state-sanctioned form of anti-Semitism, which I know well, which included entry quotas for Jews into universities and exclusion from certain uh, sectors of society. In the 70s. In, in the 70s, and bans on Jewish publications and on Jewish worship and things like that. Um, the Soviets viewed the resolution against anti-Semitism as a direct insult, insult and attack on them. So to be provocative, to try to counter it, they said, okay, so we'll live with that, but we're going to insert Zionism, we're going to parry and insert Zionism as one of the forms of racism. And in the end, the General Assembly, and this is one of the great ironies of the General Assembly, is that it is dominated by non-democratic states who use the democratic processes there to push their agenda. And so the resolution passed. And Patrick Moynihan, who was then uh, the US ambassador to the United Nations, he gave an impassioned speech where he spoke about the great lie, the great harm that had been done on that day. And he basically said that if you allow Zionism to be characterized as racism, racism no longer exists. The fight against racism will have been dealt a lethal blow if it encompasses Zionism, the national movement of the Jewish people, then racism is just not a thing anymore. It's been totally destroyed. And ironically, interestingly, you know, the way that Vladimir Putin deploys language now in calling the Ukrainians Nazis, um, he's done the same thing. So if the Ukrainians are Nazis, then Nazism also ceases to exist. It's the way words and concepts are completely devalued and trashed. So that motion was eventually after some years repealed, but the damage had been done. And shortly after it was passed, British universities began passing and voting on these resolutions. And on that basis, four Jewish student societies were kicked out of their campuses in the UK on the basis that they were Zionist and therefore racist and racists don't belong on university campuses. And we've seen it to this day. I see it on a daily basis on social media, the accusation that Zionism is a form of racism and it shows how the Soviet Union, the power of that Soviet propaganda, uh, they didn't talk, they denied their anti-Semitism. They didn't talk about the Jews per se. They spoke about the Zionists. They spoke about rootless cosmopolitans. They used every euphemism possible. Um, but they were always talking about the Jews. And the way you knew they were talking about the Jews is because what was said, the way they were spoken about, they, you know, it was about grotesque power and about being the bankers and the capitalists, the way that the Jews have always been characterized in anti-Semitic law was done in the exact same way with the same cartoons of the great serpent and the octopus engulfing the globe. But because the word Zionist was used instead of Jew, they could get away with it. Everyone knew what they were talking about, but it still gives a kind of plausible deniability to the anti-Semites, which we see to this very day. And the Durban conference in 2001, it's really a continuation of that process, which again shows how the UN can be totally distorted and taken off any noble path. I mean, that was a conference that was meant to deal again with racism and forms of xenophobia, but it was overcome by anti-Israel and anti-Semitic fanaticism. And suddenly they began passing resolutions defining Israel as an apartheid state and calling for the launch of a global solidarity movement to infiltrate trade unions and civil society and university campuses and human rights organizations to bring about, and I quote, the complete and total isolation of the Jewish state. And what we see today in the form of the BDS movement, what we see happening in every single sector of society, that stems from that. 
from the Durban conference. And, you know, in terms of how we counter this, I think exposing these origins is important, but people have limited bandwidth. But I think the point has to be made over and over again that Zionism is inherent to who we are as Jews. And even though there is always going to be a Jew to stand up and say, as a Jew, I support the Palestinian resistance, uh, or I support Hamas, or I loathe Zionism, you know, fringe players don't define a movement. And virtually all Jews feel a connection to our ancestral lands, feel a connection to the modern state of Israel. We are Zionist. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of our identity that we will never relinquish. And if people say, I will accept you as a Jew, if you discard your Zionism, if you spit on the flag of Israel, that's not acceptance. That's not acceptance. And so we need to explain to people who we are, what we believe, and why Zionism is who we are, and fundamental to our identity and our history and our future as a people. It's so ironic because Leon Mint, um, Pinska and Herzl, they started Zionism as a protest and try to fix anti-Semitism and it's turned as another ploy. And I think I always tell my students, I'm like, the Jews were accused of killing Jesus. There's always something that mm. they're going to, we were the ones that were drinking baby's blood. There's always some insane story that everyone jumps on the bandwagon. It's not the first time it's happened. Mm. And one of my favorite quotes is Mark Twain always says, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think that is a comfort that the world hasn't changed and that Jewish people will get through these horrible times. There's one thing that I think I read about, and I just want to get your thoughts on it. Sure. How deeply do you think Mahmoud Abbas wrote a thesis sort of trying to, in, in the Soviet Union, trying to link the Jewish, the Jews to the Nazis, the Zionists to the Nazis during the war? How deeply do you think that's important in the narrative that has come out in recent days? I think it's been popular to argue what Abbas has argued in kind of niche circles in the anti-Israel movement, you know, about the Havara agreement and about the Zionists supposedly being in league with the Nazis, um, which is utter rubbish. And I talk about it in my book on Zionism, about what that agreement actually was. It was a way for the Jews of Germany to ransom themselves to basically get out of the country and sell their possessions for, you know, nickels on the dollar and just get out of the country. Um, and that was still at a phase when Nazism was still looking at resettlement of Jews, expulsion of Jews, rather than complete annihilation of Jews. I think Eichmann came to Israel, am I right? That, that's right, that's right. So they were looking at various places to, you know, export the Jews, to relinquish themselves to the Jewish problem. And the Havara Agreement was an extension of that. Um, it wasn't the Zionists being fond of Nazism or the other way around. But when we talk about the aim of the anti-Israel movement is to associate the Jews with evil, the great evil is Nazism. So it's inevitable, and we hear it all the time now, about Jews being Nazis, about Israel being the Nazi state, Netanyahu's depicted as Hitler. And this was a, a, an example of that, of tying the quest for Jewish survival in impossible circumstances with Nazism. So it's kind of a footnote, but it's also indicative of something much wider that's happening in, in the anti-Israel movement and in society, which is the association of the Jews with evil. Um, and that's something which is challenging to overcome because it, it's been an accusation and a package of lies that's accompanied us throughout our history. People have a willingness to believe these things. So, you know, the United States might fight 
a terrorist foe embedded in a civilian population in Iraq and Syria. But accusations of genocide never come. Accusations of deliberately killing women and children, of harvesting organs, they just don't arise because people aren't willing to believe that. But when it comes to the Jews, there's a willingness and a desire to believe it because on some level it's just seeped into the subconscious. This characterization of the Jews, the view of the Jews as malevolent and sinister and wicked. And people believe these things because they choose to believe them. Uh, it's deeply unfortunate. And ultimately, you know, it requires the unpacking of anti-Semitism, which is what my last book is seeking to achieve, um, to really trace those myths to their beginnings so that they lose their power and their hold over people. But it'll be a long process, you know, and every Jew, I believe, has a duty to fight and to contribute to that process through their own education and then through engagement with others. Because I've always believed that with these myths, the mythological Jew and the real Jew, they can't exist in the same place. When the real Jew enters the room, the myth falls apart. And so the more that Jews enter spaces and rooms with non-Jews and contribute, I think the less power these myths will have. I think you said it very clearly in your book. There's no reason. I'm not coming here to tell you why anti-Semitism exists, but I'm coming to tell you what it is. And I think that was really important. And you spoke about the word Sinai, that in Sinai is the word Sinai, that hatred birthed at Sinai. So I think that's a really important thing that the Jewish community needs to wrap their head around. It's not new. It's okay. Yeah. And we'll get through it. Yeah. I mean, that that's something that in the course of my research, a conclusion that I came to that, you know, every Jewish writer, I believe at some point will turn their mind to the question of why, why are the Jews so hated? And this was my attempt to answer that question. And I believe I went somewhere along that journey and I formed my own views, which are amalgams of other theories. And I talk about them mainly in the introduction to the book, but I realized along the way that the why doesn't actually matter. Because the why of anti-Semitism left the realm of the rational so long ago that to attempt to explain it with rational theories and ideas is futile. So what concerns me more, what interests me more, and that's why this book was written, is how it works, how it's transmitted, how it's passed on, how it infects healthy minds and healthy societies. And that is through this package of myths and conspiracy theories. And so my belief is, is that by showing their stupidity, by showing the individuals that, that were so warped in their thinking, that were really monomaniacal in this quest to bring the Jews low, usually for their own personal purposes, by broaching it in that way and showing its continuum, they'll lose their hold over society, they'll lose their potency. Um, it's a very ambitious project I've embarked on here, and it will take a long time, but I believe that it's necessary. And as I said, I believe it's the duty of every Jew to contribute to this fight. So as a historian, we can all equivocally feel at peace with the fact that what's going on in Israel is not our fault. We're not bad people. We're not hurting anyone. And I think Jews really need to hear that because I get messages of people trying to just feel at peace. You sit on the news. I was in the hospital for a month with my grandfather and all day there were just images playing of the Palestinian problem and so many Jews are walking around with guilt. We're already predisposed to this emotion of guilt and I think it's really important that you're telling us over here how deeply anti-Semitism plays a role in this narrative and how we really need to feel at ease with it. I think that's absolutely correct. I think that's beautifully put and I think we should also feel an immense pride in this moment of belonging to this extraordinary people, this people that endure and survive 
and move forward no matter what we face. We've always done it and we'll always do it. Um, and no matter what hatred we attract for it and whether it's because we were given the Ten Commandments or whether it's because we refuse to bow our heads to mightier empires or we refuse to convert to Christianity and Islam, the successor monotheistic faiths, whatever the reason, we should be immensely proud of who we are as a people. Never seek to explain ourselves to those who hate us and really embrace this moment because we're in a moment now which is horrific. You know, we're seeing things and we're feeling things that we never thought we'd feel, that we thought belonged to the past, but this is our moment and this is a time to be proud and to be unified and to be guided by our history to know that whatever comes, we will endure um, and that we will move forward as a people, we'll survive. Of that, we can be sure. And the importance of educating ourselves. I think that's one thing that I really took from your book, that you have to educate yourself. So I thought that if you could give us some few things, like things that we can put in our toolkit, that wherever we go, we have the answers. So many of my students are going to university now. They're on UNSW campus and they need to know the answers and they can't just remember what happened in Jewish history in year 10. And I think in Jewish history in year 10, maybe we didn't speak about the Palestinian conflict as much as we should have. So there were some things that I read in your book that I think were really interesting, that I think were foundational to sort of combat what's going on. One was Mac Mahone, Hussein Correspondence Exchange, if that's something you could talk about, a little bit about what actually went on in the late 19th century, early 20th century, because everyone's talking about context, mm. context. So we need to have some context. We need the answers. We need to be able to stand up in front of people and be like, this is what happened in Nakba. This is the truth. Mm. And obviously we don't have all day, but I think what are a few toolkits, yeah. a few things that we can put in our toolkit to really take with us? Well, with the McMahon-Hussein correspondence, I mean... Look, I think it's important, but it's part of a broader kind of sequence of political agreements and legal tools and instruments at the time, which established the legitimacy of the Jewish state. Um, you know, you had the Balfour De Declaration 1917, you had San Remo, you had the League of Nations Covenant, um, and with the Hussein McMahon correspondence, that was seen as an example of colonialism, of redrawing of the boundaries. Um, it was alleged that in that correspondence, McMahon promised to Hussein that Palestine would go to the Arabs. Um, McMahon himself in the 60s confirmed that it was understood in the correspondence that Palestine was excluded from the discussions in the correspondence with Hussein because it would have been incompatible with the Balfour Declaration and the instruments that came after it. Palestine had been promised to the Jews. Um, and we, we need to kind of step back and understand what was happening in the region at the time. So for 400 years up to 1917, that land in the Middle East was in the hands of the Ottoman Empire. Um, the Jewish people had a state there with Jerusalem as its capital 3,000 years ago. And after that time, the land was befallen by consecutive imperial forces that colonized the land, that tried to spread their influence at the expense of the local populations, that established their buildings on the ruins of ours, these sorts of things. You know, in the 7th century, Islam was created in, in Saudi Arabia in the desert. And then Islam sought to export itself by the sword and it colonized lands, including what was the Jewish homeland, what later became Palestine. And that's how the structures on the Temple Mount came to be and why they're there. It was an act of colonialism, plain and simple, by the Arabs. But 
through that process of decolonization of the Middle East after World War I, which was basically a requirement set by Woodrow Wilson, the US president, for entering the war on the side of the Allies. He came up with 14 points, and one of which was that the former lands of the Ottoman Empire, which crumbled in 1917, should go to their original native peoples, and new states should be drawn under a protectorate system, which was the mandate system, and part of that was the Jews returning to their land. And seven new states were created, Arab states like Yemen, um, Egypt had existed already, Lebanon, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Jordan. Um, Jordan, and one of those states that came to be was a Jewish state. It made complete sense. And the Arabs really had little opposition to it at the time because they had much greater ambitions in terms of territory. Iraq was created at that time, the Kingdom of Hejaz was briefly existed and folded into Saudi Arabia. So it was only when the Jews began to assert themselves and claim the land which was rightly theirs as part of this process of decolonization and redrawing of the Middle East, that suddenly you had this organized opposition to it. But prior to that point, you know, it, it was understood, Faisal spoke about it as well, that the Jews are the native sons of that land. You know, Winston Churchill spoke about how you know, where else but in that land can the Jews be reunited? It's a land with which for 3,000 years they've been intimately and profoundly associated. So, so much has been distorted and concealed. So much is hidden in language deliberately, like even the term Palestine, which for a long time was only associated with Jews. So the, the, the Jews that lived there were Palestinians, the Arabs that lived there were Arabs, and they didn't seek to define themselves in any other way. But now people look, have a cursory glance at history. They look at the fact that before... 1948, that territory, and it wasn't a state, it was just a territory loosely, was called Palestine. They view that as evidence that we took their land. Um, but this is where knowledge is so valuable, and you spoke about education. We need to know our story, principally. If we know our story of where we came from, the circumstance under which we were exiled and forced from our land, then any Jew can rebut any claim of colonialism. The, the notion that we colonized our own land, the notion that we returned there organically, and now speak the same language that our forebears spoke thousands of years ago. We're finding relics that attest to a Jewish kingdom in the land thousands of years ago. That's not colonialism. That's a return movement. That's something that should be celebrated. So, I mean, I'm always reluctant to give kind of talking points. I think nothing is a substitute for real knowledge. And I think that we have a duty as Jews to inform ourselves first and foremost. And it's not even for the purpose of advocacy externally and convincing others. My biggest fear is that when Jews don't know their own story, when they're faced with this hatred and accusations about genocide and colonialism and apartheid and ethnic cleansing and imperialism, if they don't know what to do, if they don't know that it's nonsense, there's a fear that they will either believe it or become apathetic and turn away. And we can't afford that. If that happens, everything is lost. So we need to ensure, first and foremost, we educate our own children, our grandchildren, our own people, and the advocacy will flow from that. To what extent do you think Islam and what Al Husseini did, do you think it's even possible because the Palestinian narrative is so ingrained in this story of the Muslim people, do you think we can ever move forward because it's like Islam is 22% of the population. How we even, how is it even possible to ha go into a conversation like this? So, look, Islam is not a monolith. And you look at the Islamic states throughout the region, and there are different types of states there. You know, there are hereditary kingdoms, 
and there are states ruled by military strongmen who are fairly secular in their outlook. Um, and then there are those groups that want to lead through Islam and Sharia, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas is an offshoot of that. And some of those forms of government you can do business with and you can have an agreement with, um, and some you can't. So an Islamist movement you can never have an agreement with because the view of radical Islam, the view of Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood and groups like that is that the world is divided into the sphere of Islam, which is the sphere of peace, and the sphere of the infidel, which is to be turned over, which is to be conquered by Islam. And so if you understand that as the starting point of Hamas, you know that the idea of delineating a border of mutual coexistence of a two-state solution with them is a delusion, a fantasy, a nonsense. When you talk about an Egyptian government like that led by el-Sisi, when you talk about uh, the rulers of the Emirates, um, of Bahrain, of Saudi Arabia, this is a different worldview. Uh, problematic in other ways. I'm not saying that the, these aren't flawed governments and regimes. But in terms of recognizing the Jewish people and recognizing a Jewish state, it's possible, as we've seen. So I think we can't fall into the trap of viewing Islam as homogenous. It's not. But we can't also view um, malignant negative actors like Hamas in the same way as we would view the government of Egypt or Jordan or Saudi Arabia or anything like that. We have to make those distinctions. If we fail to do so, we make horrific mistakes and October 7 results. I just want to ask you about Ofer Kassif, like anti-Zionist, Jews that live in Israel, all these Tel Avivian protests. What do we make of it? You know, every people, every movement have, has had a minority within it that wants to use their um, identity as part of that movement to turn on the movement itself. The Jews have had that throughout history. We've had Jews become inquisitors in the Spanish Inquisition. We had Jews collaborating with Soviet regime against other Jews. In my view, it's in the realm of psychoanalysis more than anything else, but I think it's a response to trauma. You know, it's not easy to be hated. And when the Jews are hated, the reaction of some Jews is to stand up and stand proud and fight back. But the reaction of others is to side with their oppressors. It's a way they think they can ameliorate the hatred and make it go away. It's foolish, uh, it's spineless, but it occurs. But what we need to do is we need to understand that the anti-Semitic movements will always elevate those tiny, tiny number of Jews that hate their own people, that hate the state of Israel, because it suits them. It presents a cloak, a fig leaf for their own anti-Semitism. But we just need to drown out those voices with the 99% of Jews that find those views shameful and abhorrent and define who we are and what the majority of Jews stand for, the exceeding majority of Jews stand for. And that is for Jewish pride, Jewish statehood, Jewish self-determination and Jewish continuity. So my final question for you is, what do you think is the most important message the Jewish people today to empower them and give them hope during these times? I think, you know, the, the one great thing that has come from this horror is the unity of the Jewish people and the engagement of the Jewish people. And it's a tragedy and it's a travesty that it takes something like this for that to occur. For Jews who have drifted from their faith and their community to suddenly feel Jewish and step forward and say, how can I help? What can I do? But that's what's happening. And we need to take advantage of this momentum of this moment and turn it from the moment of anti-Semitism to the Jewish moment. And we need to deepen our connection to ourselves as Jews, to our community, to our people, to our nation state, 
And we need to, as overwhelming as things seem at the moment, as horrific as they are, we need to embrace the moment and the challenge. We need to understand that this is our time. Um, and we need to make sure that something good comes from this, that we come from this fortified and stronger and that we're able to endure. And I'm sure that we will. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you for everything. It's and I bless you that you continue fighting for the Jewish people with good health for many happy, healthy years to Thank come. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Hannah.